You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. 40 years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Boko of Beth Israel Babarin, Coat St. Luke's premier synagogue. What's interesting, you know, we talk about you know, various roles of, uh, in, in synagogue life. Uh, Israel has got a, an interesting sort of uh, structure. We all know that the prime minister really calls all the shots. And Netanyahu, I guess you would call him in a very embattled prime minister right now. Right. Uh, Biden, in a CNN interview with uh, Farid Zakaria, really sort of came down really hard on the whole Israeli government and criticized, I guess, uh, Netanyahu. And of course, I think Biden always uh, mentions his long and wondrous connection with Israel going back to when he was a senator. It, it, but it's interesting that, and we'll talk about Biden in, in, more in a minute, but as much as he sort of slammed Netanyahu and his government, it seemed to be a done deal that uh, Yitzchak Herzog or Isaac Herzog uh, was going to address the uh, a joint session of Congress in honor of Israel's 70th anniversary. And well, I think there's a lot of things going on here at the same time. Also, you had the uh, the announcement of a handful of uh, Democratic Congress people who are going to boycott uh, Herzog. And then you had um, uh, the congresswoman who is uh, actually the chairwoman of the uh, of this progressive caucus, Pramila Jayapal from the state of Washington, call Israel racist. And then she apologized and then she kind of backed off her apology. And then in the response to that, the Republicans offered a resolution supporting Israel, which uh, passed by a resounding margin of 412 to nine with one abstention. So overwhelmingly, the Democratic Congress people voted on that resolution, favor of the resolution supporting Israel. So all, all this is going on at the same time. While there's an ongoing issue of whether Bibi would get invited to Washington to the White House. So let's just tell our listeners he's already he was already scheduled to address the UN somewhere in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur this year. And the question is, well, he's going to be in town anyway. Let's invite him to come to the White House. So again, it was it was unprecedented the uh, the length of time it took for the uh, for Biden to uh, uh, extend an invitation. Herzog uh, was. Uh, was welcomed uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, or last week. And that was seen kind of as a dig against BB as well. There are different reports on exactly uh, what happened with the invitation, where the White House statement on it didn't mention it would be the Oval Office and the briefing given to journalists, to Israeli journalists by Israeli government people. They said he's been invited to the Oval Office. There's a lot of petty stuff going on. I mean, listen, there are a couple of trends going on here. You do have what is now a fringe, but people fear is a growing fringe of the Democratic Party that is not supportive of Israel in the way that we were uh, accustomed to witnessing in the past. You know, like you say, it's quite petty whether he's in the Oval Office or not. The optics are so different if it's in the Rose Garden or if it's in the Oval Office. Well, you know, the Oval Office is considered the highest uh, invitation. So, you know... It'll probably end up being the Oval Office. But I, I think what people are missing in this whole conversation is a couple of things. Number one, Joe Biden has a cabinet. And in that cabinet, there are a remarkably large number of Jews. I mean, and I point this out, you know, just as an indication of, Amer- of American Jewish uh, success and achievement. Who are the Jews that he's around? Okay, the Jews in Biden's unit. 
reverse are people who have a very profound animus against BB Netanyahu personally, against Likud governments generally. This goes back to many of them having served in, in Obama's administration. And not only that, is they represent the great majority of Jews in America who see themselves on the liberal end of the spectrum, right? The great majority of Jews vote for the Democratic Party. The majority of American Jews do not want to see an Israeli government influenced by religious parties to, to the degree that it is now. Uh, they, they've certainly been convinced to be opposed to the judicial reform being proposed in Israel. That's who he's talking to. So when Biden calculates whether there's a political price to pay for criticizing Bibi and criticizing the judicial reform, the answer is obviously no. In other words, there's a pr- he actually gains support amongst American Jews for doing this. He does not in any way hurt his chances with the Jewish electorate by bashing Bibi and bashing judicial reform and calling this an extremist government. By saying that, he's in sync with the vast majority of American Jews. Let's also t- throw in the 60-page statement on anti-Semitism. That came out, I think, in the last month or so. Right. Uh, which, you know, a lot of it was sort of boilerplate, but it was pretty astonishing to have, you know, a major announcement that a paper issued about the evil that is anti-Semitism and to have a, uh, an actual, uh, uh, again, uh, the, the greatness of, of what it means to live in a democracy like this, where, you know, despite the anti-Israel sentiment that is, is bruised in the places, but here's the official organ of... Okay, but, but again, there were several failures in that document. Number one, although it officially recognized IRA definition, which includes the uh, preposterous criticism of Israel as, as an expression of anti-Semitism, it also acknowledged the existence of a different definition of anti-Semitism called the Nexus defin- definition, which is kind of a J Street definition where criticism of Israel... In, in even questioning its right to exist is not considered anti-Semitic. It also somehow bizarrely takes a proponent of anti-Semitism and includes them as a as a partner in fighting anti-Semitism. The uh, care organization of uh, of American Islamists and, and and for the for the document on anti-Semitism to legitimize care and to legitimize the Nexus definition is to in fact put yourself in the camp of those who are uh, repeatedly and vociferously anti-Israel and have uh, been certainly linked with uh, some very bad actors in the past. But you're right. And it's sort of, in a way, he can point to it as something uh, unique and perhaps even groundbreaking in terms of a of an of, a, of an Yeah, anti- I mean, there's certainly some comfort to be taken that the White House would issue a document on anti-Semitism, increase funding for, for Jewish institutional uh, security needs. And Deborah Lipstadt is certainly a woman worthy of great respect. She's the, uh, the you know, the, the, the anti-Semitism czar in the White House. And she's certainly doing a fine job, and I'm sure she wasn't happy with everything that came out of that document. But again, I don't know if, if everyone remembers this, but in 2008, when Barack Obama ran for president, right, a man who had sat in an anti-Semitic church, a man that Chicago Jews knew very well who he was and what he was all about. When he ran, he got 78% of the Jewish vote, close to 80% of the Jewish vote in 2008. Just to keep that number in perspective, that's not a landslide. That is 
<laughs> that, that's that, that's a tsunami. Yes, and uh, the the only group of people in America who voted in in a larger percentages for Obama were African Americans. By the time the second election rolled around, and his policies on Israel were by then well known, his popularity among Jews, what I will sarcastically, uh, you know, uh, describe as a took a terrible hit, went from seventy eight to like sixty six percent of the vote. American Jews vote Democratic. American Jews associate with the, you know, with, with, with liberal policies of the Democratic Party and of, uh, and of the Democratic candidates. And, uh, they think it's Jewish to be a Democrat. I, you know, I, I think we probably should pair what's been going on with the Democrats to, I guess, the Republican front runner. I think last week, the Israel Heritage Foundation hosted a dinner at the Trump Country and Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey. And of course, Trump was the guest speaker. And Trump was actually presented the Keter Yerushalayim Award. Right. I think it's somewhere between the Nobel Prize and the Pulitzer. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, when Trump spoke, of course, he went over his, his harangue again, that how could it be that only 25% of American Jews support him? You know, he did mention when they saw that in this, you know, there were many people wearing yarmulkes, and Trump said that he believes Orthodox Jews, see them especially, his, he has 100% support. There's no question that over, that Orthodox Jews vote, vote for, vote for Trump. I don't think it's 100% anywhere near that, but I believe I'm correct in, in saying the majority did vote for Trump, yes. Okay. So basically what we have is, you know, Trump pretty much cosmering over his complaint and he's so angry that nobody recognizes all he did for Israel and how come he only got 25 But point out something about Trump. He was great for Israel in many ways, right? The Jerusalem, the embassy, the Golan, his peace plan, whatever. He, he did some great things. On the other hand, and I said this at the time, it's not, you know, something that's obvious, only obvious now, was that what's in the best interests of those who support Israel? Is is it really in the best interest of those who support Israel to have Israel as a partisan issue? That's a uh, football and political campaigns, or is it better for there for there to be bipartisan support? Obviously, it's better for there to be bipartisan support. And if that's the case, people in leadership roles need to be very careful about how partisan they become in championing candidates from any particular party because of their pro-Israel stance. Because the wheel always turns. Trump will always be followed by Biden, and Biden will be followed uh, maybe by a Republican. So you can't ever put your, all your eggs in one basket. And what that means is we also have to understand that sometimes the embrace of Israel by certain politicians in the long term does some damage. What I mean by that is, as you well know, young Americans who trend liberal uh, view Trump as the second coming of the Ku Klux Klan or whatever, right? He's been completely demonized. And they who know very little about the Middle East or Israel, what they do know is that Trump loves Israel. And if Trump is wicked and evil and Satan, Trump's embrace of Israel in their minds leaves Israel with muddied handprints on their back from his embrace. And it taints Israel in the minds of, of, of young American liberals. And that, and that's a price to pay for Trump. Now, I know what people who would argue with me would say. They'd say, Oh, you lost them anyway, right? We can give up on the Democratic Party. We can give up on the liberals ever supporting Israel. So what's the difference? And I don't believe that. I, I happen not to believe it. I fear it. 
I'm not unrealistic, but I don't believe it. I think it's possible to maintain broad bipartisan support in the United States. I don't think we have the luxury of writing people off and being cynical about their attitudes or the long-term prospects of Israel's popularity in the Democratic Party. I think there's a growing threat, and I think all the polls show it uh, amongst younger Americans, especially those who affiliate with the Democratic Party. But I, I think we have to continue to sell sell Israel to the broad, broad spectrum of American life. Trump is the presumptive nominee, but DeSantis is not totally out yet. And I understand that he also made some comments about Israel as well. Were you impressed by what DeSantis said? I think I don't think DeSantis has carried himself well the last month or so. I think his speech on Israel a couple of days ago was wonderful, but he talked about Israel in a very emotional and a very uh, you know in, in a way that made clear where where he stands. But again, DeSantis has such a strong record to run on. Florida looks great. You know, there is no state tax. People are pouring into Florida. Florida handled COVID uh, very well. You know, he's doing well. And instead, he seems to be overly concerned with reaching out to the hardcore Trump supporters in the party by not giving any breathing room to for Trump to, to in any way criticize him. He he needs to talk about the economy he, of Florida. He needs to talk about what he's accomplished. He needs to talk about how he flipped a state that was a toss-up state into the solid column of the Republican Party. And he needs to emphasize what he's done instead of engaging in, in distracting votes. So remember, in order to win the presidency, he has to hit some moderates. And that'll be done by talking about his successful record in Florida and and, and kind of he doesn't need the, the, the culture wars for that group. And he needs to be talking more about, uh, uh, you know, about what he's already accomplished and what he'll do. But again, there are other candidates out there, you know, Scott Bowman, there are other people. Let me, let me just push back for a second. I think that he can also point to himself as the anti-woke warrior and and, and I think there's enough people that are as just like to quote uh, Peter Finch in his classic role in Network. You know, people are mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. Right. So to win the nomination, he has to try to get some of these the hardcore to vote for him, a lot of the hardcore to vote for him. But to win a national election, he has to reach out beyond the Republican base. Well, you know, I, I think we we the polarization that exists is so deep and intense. A great unifier is is really just a pipe dream. I know you're you're right about that. Although I I, I hope I'm hope you and I are both wrong, but you're probably right. But what is certainly uh, what would serve as a stark contrast to Trump is instead of talking in apocalyptic terms about an American carnage and all that stuff, is to speak hopefully and optimistically. And you need a Republican to embody the spirit. I hate to talk like an old man of Ronald Reagan. Right, someone who talks with in optimistic terms and and proud terms about America, and DeSantis can come off as too cranky and angry. I mean, you still Americans are still going to vote for somebody they imagine themselves watching, drinking a beer with, and watching a football game. Reagan, of course, catapulted himself because he enjoyed the negotiations and the politi- the politics involved in being the president of the Screen Actors. The screen Actors, of course, were fighting. For years, the studio moguls, the studio moguls who really had everybody under their thumb. And there was a lot of inequity 
there was a lot of a lack of, of payment. Uh, there was being forced into these contracts where you couldn't uh, negotiate your own terms, uh, where you were stuck for years. So, you know, uh, nobody's, you know, it's hard for us to cry real tears over the, you know, the, the, these millionaires who are, uh, who are uh, hired for Hollywood films that have incredible budgets and make a tremendous amount of money. But Reagan at the time was really a, a, a very uh, eloquent spokesman. And I think that's what got him into politics. Well, you know, Reagan, as we said, he was a member of the Screen Actors Guild and this, the screen actors have incredibly they say they're joining ranks with the writers, but I, you know, th- it seems now 99% of all productions of television and film, which you remember went on during COVID, and uh, they are now on strike. Listen, there's a revolution in the entertainment business, a huge revolution. I mean, you have everybody's cord cutting. Uh, TV stations are a thing of the past in most people's lives. Everybody's on either uh, Paramount, Netflix, Apple, or, or, or you know, Amazon Prime. Uh, and, and that's a challenge. Uh, theaters haven't recovered uh, from COVID. Yet all the while, while the Hollywood, the Hollywood leadership is talking about a decline in income, you know, the, the actors and the writers love to point to the salaries of the CEOs that are, haven't have been affected by any downturn. Uh, they're worried about AI. They're worried about them being themselves being replaced. They're worried about who owns their image. They're worried about a lot of things. Uh, and, and they have some legitimate grievances, it seems. But uh, this could be a very long strike. Well, you know, I think their, their concern about Chad GPT and AI replacing them they should be worried, as many people should be worried about their jobs, because... I'm not the, worried at all. Well, not you, but... uh laugh in the face of AI. <laughs> what, what I'm saying is is that the, the types of the scripts and ideas that uh, ChatGPT 4.0 can come up with, I'm sure is superior to most of, of what most screenwriters can come I up with. I'm much more... Artificial intelligence does not worry me. Natural stupidity worries me. You know, uh, you know, ChatGPT four oh is an incredibly powerful tool. Every and, every time something new happens, there are a bunch of like Cassandras out there yelling at how it's the end of the world. It's fine. I think what it's going to do, it's going to just like the Silicon Revolution uh, created jobs in a different area. Yeah. Uh, so what this is going to do? This is going to take. And there were people against the Gutenberg printing press, for God's sakes. I mean, come on. Uh, so if you, you know, if you were Rabbi Pupko, a member of the Screen Actors Guild, if you were someone that was like a, like a Hollywood somebody. By the way, I've been in several movies. I was in Schmelvis, The Search for the King's Jewish Roots. I was in a film called Once a Nazi. My screen career is, is vast. Maybe that's the reason why we have to go on break. And we'll catch everybody back around it. Uh, hopefully around L, where we'll get more scintillating, incredible conversation with the Emeritus Rex himself. Take care, everybody. Have a good summer. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.